to pray or not to pray? That's really no longer the question, is it? We've been looking these last few weeks at the issue of prayer, and we watched a couple of weeks ago as those sleepy saints in the garden slept away their hour of prayer. And we last week looked at the New Testament, at the life of Christ, at the words of Christ, and at the words of the lives of the apostles as well. And we found that prayer is not really an option in the Christian life. Prayer, rather, is the vehicle through which the Christian enters into the heart of God and thus finds the will of God and becomes energized by the power of God. Prayer is the doorway through which we enter the Holy of Holies. It is the gateway to his very being. It's the place where man and God meet heart to heart. It's the place where the real business of the kingdom takes place. What took place on Calvary that fateful day some 2,000 years ago really took place because of what happened in that garden a few days before. And what happened in that garden was an encounter between the living God and his son that ought to be a mirror-like reflection of the way we pray. Unfortunately, many times we do not approach the throne the way Jesus did, and I think the reason is we don't live at the throne the way Jesus did. As a reminder of those events, I'm going to take a, remind you this morning by reading one more time the harmony of the Gospels of that passage. It's nothing more than the four passages put together, and it goes like this. Then came Jesus with them across the book Kedron, where there was a garden, a place called Gethsemane into which he and his disciples entered. And when he arrived at that place, he said to them, Sit here while I go yonder and pray. And taking with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, James and John, Jesus began to be sorrowful, amazed, deeply distressed. And he said to them, My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. Remain here and watch with me. Pray that you enter not into temptation. And going forward forward with them a little farther, about a stone's throw, he knelt down on the ground and he fell on his face and he prayed that if it were possible, the hour might pass from him. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible unto thee, my Father. If it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as thou will. And you remember the story. It says, and he came to the disciples and he found them asleep. And he said to Peter, Simon, are you asleep? I mean, couldn't you watch with me one hour? Simon, watch and pray that you enter not into temptation. The spirit indeed is willing, but the flesh is weak. Again, a second time he went off and prayed, saying, My father, if thou art willing, take away this cup from me. Nevertheless, if this is cannot pass from me unless I drink it, not my will, but thine be done. And there appeared unto him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed the more earnestly, and his sweat became, as it were, great drops of blood falling upon the ground. And when he rose up from the prayer, he came to his disciples and found them sleeping again for sorrow. Their eyes were heavy, and he said to them, Why do you sleep? 
rise up and pray so that you may not enter into temptation. And they knew not what to answer him. They didn't have anything to say. That was unusual. So he left them and he went off again. And he prayed a third time saying the same thing as before. And then came he to the disciples a third time. And he said to them, are you sleeping still even now? Taking your rest? It's enough. Behold, the hour has come. And the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let's be going. Look, my betrayer is at hand. And immediately, while he was yet speaking, behold, a great crowd drew near, and he who was called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. Now Judas, who was betraying him, also knew the place, for Jesus had often resorted there with his disciples. We've looked at that passage from the vantage point of the disciples and what they missed by missing the point of Jesus' commandment. This morning we're going to enter one more time into that garden and we're going to tiptoe, if you will, and stand right behind Jesus. And we're going to listen very carefully as he prays. In essence, we want to ask him why he prayed what he prayed It may seem strange in the light of how so many describe prayer, but if you think about it, he could have called legions of angels to deliver him had he chosen. He could have. We know that because he said so in Matthew 26, 53. Thinkest thou not that I, thinkest thou that I cannot now pray to my father, Jesus said, and he shall presently give me more than twelve legions of angels. But how then could the scriptures be fulfilled? Yes, he could have called 12 legions of angels, and surely you and I would have if we'd been Jesus. The disciples expected him to. Human nature sort of demanded it. It would be the only way that God, the God who spoke the worlds into being could possibly save face and avoid the humiliation that was about to face him. He could have, but of course he didn't. And you and I now know that he wouldn't. Because we stood behind him in that garden and we heard that secret intimate conversation that took place between the word made flesh and Jehovah God. That conversation is going to be the focus of this morning's study. Now think about it with me, beloved. Jesus was facing certain death. Prior to his execution, there would be betrayal, humiliation, grief, and shame. He was going to be physically beaten, emotionally abused, and be cast. Spiritually, he would encounter the greatest single thrust of Satan's fear ever to be cast at man. It was to be the devil's last hurrah. Every ounce of evil energy available to the host of hell was being garnered for this, what Satan construed to be his ultimate triumph. Now you think about it. If Jesus Christ were to turn the tables on and cast down Satan, he would have to taste humiliation. He would have to face the ultimate pain that the Holy One would experience. He would have to taste sin. He would have to leave his place in the Father's arms where sin had never touched him. He would have to not only be separated from his father, he would have to bear the weight of sin, though he had never sinned, and his holiness would have to be marred by the presence of that which destroys holiness. He would have to bear the weight of the sins of all mankind, past, present, and future. 
Now, we can't really understand that. We try. If you think about it, the angels in heaven couldn't understand it either. They had never tasted sin. So they'd never felt its ugly tentacles about their holy hearts. They didn't know. And we can't fully grasp it because we've not been without sin. We were born in sin, so we can't grasp the price he paid. But here was the Holy One who had never left God's holy place, bearing the brunt of all sin for all time. That's what he was facing as he faced the Father in that corner of that garden that fateful evening. As they entered the garden, his heart was so heavy. He cried out to his friends and agony so that they would enter into the fellowship of his sufferings with him. That's what prayer partners are for, isn't it? And Jesus was the ultimate, became the ultimate prayer partner. He, he's even right now seated at the right hand of the Father, and the Scripture says he ever liveth to make intercession for us. He wasn't complaining. He wasn't afraid. But his heart was breaking. He was hurting. His spirit was grieved. The scripture says he was sorrowful, amazed, and deeply distressed. So he turned to those with whom he had shared the blessings of the kingdom. Those three, he became vulnerable to those very three who on the Mount of Transfiguration had seen the glory of God and just wanted to build three houses and stay there. You remember? They wanted to revel in that experience and live on the fumes. So do we. But Jesus knew that the very moment of spiritual victory they reveled in would ultimately become a stumbling block to their spiritual progress. So enamored were they with this emotional high that God had allowed them to have, they missed the point of how God reveals his will. You see, it wouldn't just be the mountaintops that would allow his grace to overwhelm them with an evidence of what he could do. It would be the valley of humiliation and death and despair that would reveal not only what he could do, but who he is. Somehow man has never learned that secret. They entered the garden with their guard down, and so do we. Had they been listening to his word as he spoke to them, they would have known. Oh, they heard Hosanna to the son of David as he entered into the city in the triumphant acceptance. They heard that, but somehow they didn't hear those words of caution and prophecy. The son of man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. They didn't hear that. They didn't want to hear that. They heard what they wanted. So do we. Have you ever noticed how we claim promises in Scripture? We claim promises of deliverance, promises of healing, promises of transformation. People come up and say, Bob, I claim this promise for the Lord. And I ask you, how many of you ever claim the promise, in this world you shall have tribulation? None of us seems to want to come into the presence of God and pray for patience because the scripture said, it is the trying of your faith that worketh patience. We ask God for joy, but seldom do we claim, count it all joy when you fall into all these trials. Isn't that strange? We ask God for joy, but we want it on our terms. We want it in a gift wrapped package of convenient circumstances. Don't you see? We want the peace without the pain. We want the promise without the persecution. We want the endurance without the testing. We want the results without the process. 
No wonder we don't pray right. Jesus knew better. He wanted the kingdom to come on earth as it was in heaven. For that to happen, there would have to be a cross. A huge, ugly, wooden cross. There would have to be a mocking, sarcastic crowd. There would have to be taunting Jews, gambling soldiers, faithless disciples, virtually all of life's disappointments wrapped into one horrible week of apparent failure and humiliation. But don't you see, Jesus had his eyes on the glory that would be accrued to his father when the victory was won. So the scripture says in Hebrews 12 too, he endured the cross despising the shame. He had his eyes focused on the glory of the father rather than on his own pain. And with that heart, he went into the garden to pray. And in that garden, we learn the very essence of what prayer is all about. We learn about the attitude with which we should approach the throne of God. Now, it really did happen. We know that. Of course it did. But it was not recorded in such detail just because it happened. It was recorded so that we might learn how to pray. Let's first look at the people. We tend to think of the master because he was the only one that prayed. But remember, there were three others just a few yards away, fast asleep. His three closest friends, his prayer partners, if you will. Now let's see what the relationship was and maybe we can learn something about prayer partners and prayer requests. Number one, notice he didn't share his heart with everybody, not even with the eleven. Though they were part of his team, they didn't have that much of a part of his heart the same way these three did. The other eight he took with him into the garden, but he had them wait a long ways off. And nothing is recorded in scripture that he shared the depth of his burden with them. Beloved, that means don't tell everybody your troubles. That just calls attention to you. So often we walk around and tap everybody we can on the shoulder and say, Beloved, let me tell you my prayer request. And a lot of times what we're doing is saying, Beloved, look at me. Share your heart with those who have your heart. These were his spiritual Timothys. These were the ones he had taken with him to the Mount of Transfiguration. They'd been with him in the valley. They'd been with him in the heights. They'd shared his moments of triumph. They'd shared his moments of sorrow. These were his prayer partners. To them, he opened his heart. Now look at how he did it. He didn't complain to them. He didn't share needless details. He just told them his heart was breaking and why. So often people sharing prayer requests share needless information that might hurt other people or start rumors or bring people to wrong conclusions. They didn't need to know any more than this. What they needed to know that he was facing the most difficult spiritual battle in his life. It would affect him, it would affect them, and it would affect all of mankind. So he opened up and shared his burden. And having shared those burdens, he had expectations. Boy, we can learn from that. He expected them to stay awake, pay attention, and pray. Those expectations were reasonable. They were prayer partners together in the kingdom. He'd taken them with him to the heights. Now they had the privilege of going with him to the depths. Isn't it strange how often we want our friendships to be one-way trips? He expected them to pray. He had a right to. But what does that say about his expectations of us? We want to walk with him to the mountains and tell the world about it, but how seldom we want to walk with him in the valley. And then finally, his concern for them was what? That they enter not into temptation. What temptation do you suppose that was? 
Well, I believe it was the temptation that would be just on the horizon when the hour of testing would come as would see their Lord taken from them, ridiculed, tried, and sentenced to death. It would be the temptation to deny him, the temptation to lose trust, the temptation to lose heart that everything he said would come true. They didn't watch. They didn't pray. And when temptation came, they fell, all three of them. Peter, the one Jesus addressed directly, was the one that fell the farthest. He denied that he'd ever known the Lord. So Jesus didn't go alone. And there were many reasons. He wanted his prayer partners to enter into the fellowship of his sufferings. They refused. He wanted them to pray so they would escape the temptation to lose heart. They didn't. And he wanted them to know that God's will includes valleys and wooden crosses and unjust authority and unfair decisions, but they missed it. But it wasn't because Jesus didn't try to show them. Here he was in the most crucial, painful time of his life, and yet he took the time to take these three slow learners and sit them down and try to teach them how to pray. Now look at his posture. It's interesting, he, he left the three to pray, or I should say sleep. And he went a few yards away and he began to pray. He didn't stand lifting his hands to heaven, though he could have. He didn't sit on a rock with his head bowed, but he could have. On this particular occasion, beloved, he needed to be in absolute humility and submission to the Father, so he fell on his face before God. He fell down on the ground, and without so much as lifting his head, the Scripture says, he demonstrated by the way he prayed what his attitude would be as he prayed. Now, the posture with which we pray is not crucial. The Bible illustrates many different ways to pray. But there are times when the burdens we carry are so heavy and our hearts so desperate to find his will that just standing casually or even sitting bowed does not illustrate to God or say to us how serious the matter is. Sometimes we simply need to fall on our faces before God and stay there. Now look at the prelude. Jesus begins by saying, Abba, Father. The word Abba was the Aramaic word for father. It was used only by Jews where both parents of a real son were Jews or of a proselyte of the covenant. It was a term of great endearment and recognition of the role of honor and authority the father held. This was Jesus' way of saying, My father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. And what it says to us, beloved, is when you pray, don't rush into the presence of God and just start throwing your problems at God. First, honor him. First, acknowledge who he is and what place he plays in the scheme of things. He's God. He is omnipotent. There's nothing he cannot do. He is omniscient. There's nothing he does not know. Honor him. You would never dare walk into the president uh, office of the president of the United States without first saying, Mr. President, don't come into God's presence without first bowing and recognizing his holy name. And then the praise. Look how he begins. Abba, Father, he says, all things are possible with thee. What an incredible way to begin a prayer. He didn't begin by putting God to the test, indicating that, God, if you are able, this is what I need you to do. That's the way sometimes we pray. Jesus began by saying, God, what you can do is not the issue. There's nothing you cannot do. What we're asking for is not your power, but your will. 
And sometimes when we come to the Father with seemingly hopeless, impossible situations, he would be really good for us to begin praying that way. Dear God, the issue is not whether or not you can move that mountain that stands in the way that seems so impossible. Father, you can speak, and this world as we know it will disintegrate. Father, you can speak, and the, the skies will fall. I love Psalm 46.6. I think it's a great memory verse, and it's a good verse to begin a prayer with when you're facing difficult situations. You remember it says, The heathen raged, the kingdoms were moved. God uttered his voice, and the earth melted. So before you approach what appears to be impossible, remind yourself and worship God that the impossible is what God does best. No one can share his glory when he parts seas, brings water out of rocks, or sends down fire from heaven. So the more difficult your situation, the more impossible your situation, the more delighted God will be to intervene. So before you ask, acknowledge who it is you're asking. You're petitioning the eternal, omnipotent, almighty God who spoke the worlds into being. Remember that. Then you're ready to pray. Next, the petition. Jesus didn't beat around a bush. Having honored God for who he is and having addressed God with the dignity due his name, he gets straight to the point. He says, Father, about what I'm facing, I'd really like to know if there's any other way to bring to you the glory you're due and the results you know are best. So, Father, I'm going to ask you, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, you might argue that Jesus knew there was no other way, that he was only praying this prayer so he could, we could learn how to pray. We have no way of knowing. But either way, beloved, the lessons are the same. His heart was breaking. The prospect of being separated from his father was what was doing the breaking. And the prospect of tasting sin was bringing him a grief he had never experienced before. And it would be unforgivable for him not to talk it over with his father. You want your children to tell you all their hurts and all their concerns, don't you? You want them to be real and honest and vulnerable. And that's what God wants us to be. Sure, he knows what we have need of before we ask. But again and again, he says, keep on asking and you shall receive. The process, you see, is part of the plan. So three times Jesus asked the same thing. Three times he repeated the same prayer. It wasn't because he wasn't creative. He created the world. It wasn't because he was afraid the father didn't hear him because he knew that the God of Israel neither slumbers or sleeps. It's because he wanted to walk through the process with the father until he had tasted everything emotionally and spiritually the father had for him to experience. Are you willing to do that? So often we pray about something once and a kind of peace settles in our spirits and we know that God has heard us and the issue settled. But there are many other times, aren't there, beloved, when God doesn't grant us that peace so quickly, lest we think God is some kind of a computer program and we press a button and we get what we want. So often God remains silent to test our faith. And the deeper the trial and the more trustworthy you are, often the longer he waits. Jesus was demonstrating you don't need to send off a prayer to God and then pack up and say, Lord, you had your chance. 
He was showing us that there are times when we go back again and again and again to let God know how deeply we care and how desperately we want his will to be done. Which brings us to the, to the prayer itself and the principles involved. Please, please think carefully with me for the next few moments. This is the crux of what I believe God is trying to say in this passage. Jesus really had three choices. Same three choices we have when we take a matter to God in prayer. Number one, he could have claimed God's power wrongfully. He could have taken God's word out of context and used it to deliver him. He could have said, Father, whatsoever you ask, believing you shall receive, and then dared the Father not to crush Satan under his feet and take him from the clutches of Pilate and his accusers. He could have done that. He could have, as we heard a moment ago, called in 10,000 angels, as the song says, to destroy the world and set him free. He could have. That was choice number one. Choice number two could have been a kind of unrealistic, fatalistic resignation to whatever was going to happen. He could have said, Lord, you're going to do what you're going to do, so do it. Now, don't laugh. That's the way many of us pray most of the time. We would never talk, tell anyone we do. But if you examine our hearts, basically a lot of time we say, let's go through the motions of praying because God's already made up his mind and he just wants to hear us pray because it makes him happy. His third choice was to enter into God's presence in total humility and stay there until he found the Father's will so he could enter into it. That would require vulnerability. That would require honesty. That would require openness. And that would finally require submission. It means that Jesus would need to tell his father how badly he hurt, how much he dreaded that cross, how his heart broke at the prospect of being separated from his father, and how he longed for another solution, provided that solution would not compromise his father's spiritual plans, not even one iota. And then you remember Jesus lifted his eyes to the heaven and suddenly another perspective emerged. He said, but Father, should that cross be necessary for you to accomplish your purposes, I want that cross. Don't you see? Suddenly the cross became a blessing. Oh, the pain would be no less, the persecution no less severe. But what a privilege it would become. He would be entering into the glorious joy of seeing the Father's will be done. Nothing could be more wonderful than that. Satan didn't want Jesus to reach that conclusion. So he unleashed every round of ammunition he owned. He fired every fiery dart in his bag of tricks. And the oppression became so heavy that Jesus, seeking his father's mind above all, began to pray with a kind of surrender and intensity so severe that his sweat became drops of blood. His whole body, soul, and spirit became wrapped up in one all-encompassing goal to find and to do the father's will. Now guess what? His father's will would turn out to be the one thing he had asked the Father not to do, should that be possible? It often is, beloved. It often is. And in our heart of hearts, we often know that. So we say we don't know how to pray, 
or at least we don't think we do. But really, we're afraid to become vulnerable, so we shrink back from praying aright. Either do we demand that God do it our way, or we assume that what difference does it make if I pray posture, and sure enough, nothing happens. And we don't get changed. Our understanding of answered prayer is that God is answered if, we, if what we ask for is the answer. That makes prayer one-way instructional dialogue between us and God, and we're doing the instructing, don't you see? God help us. No wonder there's so little answered prayer in our generation. We aren't seeking to bring our wills in harmony into harmony with God's. We're seeking to bring God's will in harmony with ours. Don't you see the difference? Often we don't want to face the impossibility that the possibility that God would allow us what we so dread in order to accomplish his purpose on earth, which was for his kingdom to come on earth as it is in heaven. So we don't stay on our knees in his presence, asking him to reveal his plan and giving him the freedom to let, to, to let that plan be whatever it takes. Instead, we shoot missiles of requests up in the air, either daring him to agree or never expecting anything to happen. And sure enough, nothing does. Jesus in the garden that evening was teaching us how to pray. That's why it's recorded in Scripture. He was demonstrating for us what it means to stay before God when the enemy is attacking and the future is uncertain. And he's showing us, beloved, how to approach God when what appears to be facing us doesn't line up with what we want God to do in our lives. In reality, this is when we usually pray the most, isn't it? But unfortunately, it's not when we usually pray the most like Jesus prayed. He went before the Father in utter submission and total honesty. He told his friends and he told his Father how much he was hurting. Then he offered his Father the privilege of demonstrating his power and his love in one of two ways. He could demonstrate his power by crushing Satan under his feet and vindicating the Lord of glory. Or he could allow his precious Son to endure the humiliation of a Roman cross and set mankind free for all eternity. And all Jesus wanted was for his Father's will to be done. And all the Father wanted was for his love to be made manifest to the world. The problem was there needed to be a sin bearer for the plan to work. That sin bearer had to be sinless. And in all of the universe, there was only one person who qualified. And that meant God the Father had no choice. And Jesus never blinked an eye. If that was the best way, he was willing to walk toward that cross without ever so much as a second thought. All he needed was to stay in the Father's presence until he, and hear the Father's word until he knew the Father's will. That's what prayer is. Prayer isn't badgering God to do things your way. Prayer is becoming so intimately acquainted with the heart of God that the only way is his way. It's the process of communicating heart to heart with God until his heart becomes yours. And in the process, you become so enamored with his love that you know his plan is best. You may suggest alternatives. You even plead with him if it be possible to consider them. But you never demand your way at the expense of his higher ways. Never. That would rob him of his glory and rob you of the work he wants to do in your life. So as you plead, you surrender. You tell him how much you hurt. You share your grief with him, but then you appropriate his comfort, and all the while you ask him to change your perspective until if the worst scenario, humanly speaking, should be the best thing for him to do, you reach the place where you not only accept it, 
you reach the place where you leap for joy at the prospect of it because it's his will. That, beloved, is what is called prayer. Finally, look at the passion with which Jesus sought the Father's heart. I don't know how to explain it. I, I can only, we only get a glimpse of it, and, and my heart breaks every time I read it, and I don't know how to deal with it. He prayed until he was soaked with sweat. And then he prayed until his sweat turned to blood. Every fiber of his being was being poured out. And the reason was he was in a fierce conflict with Satan. It was Satan's desire that Jesus do anything but this. Satan had no problem with Jesus being made a king. He encouraged that. Kingship without the cross meant Jesus would win the battle and lose the war. Satan had no problem with Jesus being hailed a great teacher. Great teachers eventually die and are forgotten. Satan had no problem with Jesus' preaching. Great preachers come and go. The only thing Satan had a problem with was sin. So long as Jesus preached and taught and even became king without paying the price for sin, Satan would win the battle. But should Jesus somehow stay on his knees until that cross became a joy, Satan would be through. Sin would be atoned for. Man would be forever set free. And that's exactly what happened. Jesus paid the price and set us free. But it didn't really happen on that cross. Or, of course, it did. But it really happened in the true sense in the garden when the oppression of the evil one and the will of the Father collided in one final battle for the heart of the Son of God. Jesus was being tempted at all points like his weight. He was undergoing the supreme test. The sin would be to accept anything less than God's perfect will. And the temptation would be not to overtly deny God's best, but just to rationalize it because of how unlikely and abnormal it seemed for God to die, there had to be another way. And that, beloved, is the same lie Satan uses today. Can't be God's will for our loved one to die. Can it? It can't be God's will for that economic crisis to come into our lives and overtake us. Can it? It can't be God's will for us to be humiliated and misunderstood and even forsaken. Could it? See, that's our logic. So we pray, or we call it prayer. We ask God to remove the problem so he can be glorified. Problem is that the problem is there so he can be glorified. In a brief moment of prayer, we're not going to see the difference. So often God lets the storm clouds gather in our lives, beloved, with such intensity that we have no choice but to fall on our faces in utter abandonment and cry out to him. And only then, as the forces of satanic opposition press down upon us, are we likely to finally cry out, If it be possible, Lord, let this pass from me. Nevertheless, thy will be done. The nevertheless sort of sticks in our throats, doesn't it? It's unnatural, it's painful. It conjures up all kinds of scenarios that could come to pass that we can't imagine that we could endure. But beloved, Jesus understands. He's been there. He knows how you feel. And in his case, there was no reaping and sowing, not even a hint that he deserved the consequences. He was sinless. That's what made it possible. Now listen to me. 
In closing, beloved, the closer you get to the heart of God, the more likely it may be that God will call you to a Golgotha of your own. He will want to prove you to prove you're his. He will want to purge you to make you even more usable. He will want to demonstrate through you that there's a world to come that contains treasures more wonderful than anything you might be giving up to do his precious will. Sweat drops of blood. You probably will never pray like that. But there may well be a degree to which you come closer to that kind of intensity at the throne of grace than you ever have before. It'll depend on one thing. It'll depend on whether or not you understand what it means to pray the way Jesus did. Do you grasp the freedom that comes when you're honest enough with God to bear your soul and open your heart and yet submissive enough to God that you'd rather go through the humiliation of a cross for the crown that awaits you in glory? Such lessons do not come easily. Nor do they come to everyone. But beloved, they do come to everyone who comes to see prayer for what it is. Prayer is staying on your face before God until his glory overtakes you, his love overpowers you, and the only thing that matters to you is what matters to him. You may well cry out, Lord, if it be possible, and then with a sigh, not just of resignation, but a sigh of victory, but Lord, if not, do whatever it takes. Whatever it takes. What a difficult phrase. It means giving God unqualified praise all the while yielding at whatever the cost to what seems to the flesh a horrible cross. Yet all the while knowing as your heart becomes still that nothing else matters but doing his will. So you quietly cry even as your heart breaks, oh, precious Lord, do whatever it takes. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we stood behind the Master this morning. We saw sweat drops of blood fall from his brow. We heard the emotion in his voice. We sensed the oppressive clouds of the enemy hovering overhead. And all the while he was teaching us how to pray. We tend to get excited that he prayed like that. But somehow forget that he now lives in us and ever lives to make intercession for us. And his heart's desire is that we learn to let him in us pray the way he prays. And Father, we realize it may mean 
across. But that cross will be victory. It may mean grief. It may mean sorrow. It may mean pain. But whatever it means, and whatever it takes, it will be glory. Teach us to pray, Father, and help us to pray the way Jesus prayed. In his name we ask it. Amen.